You may be a landowner or know someone who owns a tract of land. Landowners often talk about their right to use their land as they wish. However, taking a long-term view and considering the needs of the natural world that is part of the land can benefit not only the landowner, but the surrounding community and future generations as well. Welcome to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. Let me introduce you to HELM, H-E-L-M, the Habitat Enhancing Land Management Program. HELM is about helping landowners manage land in harmony with nature. Working with nature brings many benefits, like encouraging the growth of a diverse set of wildflowers, grasses, and trees that attract birds, butterflies, and other wildlife. A healthy, functioning ecosystem is less work for humans, while providing more enjoyment of the many wonders of nature. Let's meet two of the people instrumental in the HELM program in Central Texas. They are Christine Middleton and Dick McBride. Both are master naturalists. I asked Christine to start by talking about what HELM is. What it is designed to do is teach landowners about land stewardship. Um, when I say land stewardship, I'm talking about caring for your land in ways that are in harmony with nature, balancing the landowner's needs with those of the natural world. So um, that's what Helm is all about, taking care of your land in, in, in ways that um, are in harmony with nature. All land has special features that make it unique. And as any environmentalist can tell you, changing just one small thing on the land can have major ripple effects. Christine says Helm can help the many new residents of a growing county understand their relationship and responsibility to the land they buy. And lots of people who are moving in are buying small tracts of land, maybe five to 30 acres. Um, and they're attracted to the beauty of the hill country, but they don't understand its, its fragility. We were karst. Um, um, it, ge our geology is karst. It's limestone with holes in it that lead down to our um, aquifers and supply our water, which being a place that with frequent droughts, we need to be conscious of. When you do things on the surface, there's a lot of impacts that happen under the surface. We, whether, whether, you, whether the water is absorbed into the soil and gets into those karst features and gets down to the aquifer, or if it runs off and heads for the Gulf of Mexico, depends on what you're doing on the land. And there are also many myths. Even people who have lived here a long time have fallen for many myths about the land that are, are not really correct and not even really good for our ecosystems. So what we, what we are doing is just pointing people in the right direction so they can ultimately uh, protect the health of the, of the hill country. You might wonder whether a particular event spurred the creation of the HELM program. In 2015, during the Memorial Day weekend, catastrophic flooding on the Blanco and San Marcos rivers swept through the towns of Wimberley and San Marcos, killing 13 people, injuring others, and destroying property, most notably in areas along the river banks. Landowners along the river generally mow the land down to the river, 
removing tall grasses and other natural vegetation that could have slowed down floodwaters. It all started after the Memorial Day flood in 2015 here in Wimberley. And when that happened, I had a chance to visit with a lot of landowners on their land. And it was amazing how different the conversation is when you're standing on somebody's property talking about problems that they're having at a particular spot on the property. It's, it's easier to know what's going on, but it's also easier to communicate and uh, more meaningful. So that's, that's why I came, I came up with this program. I would add to that that there was a perfect example of people not treating their property in a proper way, and it created far more damage than could have been prevented just by doing some more things on their land to prevent it with uh, nature. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here today with Christine Middleton and Dick McBride. They are both master naturalists in Hayes County, Texas, and we're talking about a program called HELM, which helps landowners manage their land in a way that is more environmentally friendly. I think a lot of people move here, and and that's another thing. A number of these properties are people that are living in Florida, California, stuff like that, and they're going to move here. They have a home already or something, but they're in the process. So they're coming in. They don't know anything about this. And as Chris said earlier, the the environment here are, are is just very fragile. And unfortunately, the majority of it was just ruined 100, 150 years ago by early land management. And so we're just trying to bring in better land management and, and hopefully we'll start spreading the word. We've, we've, t- we've been taught that we need to control nature. And that's, that's not what we need to do. We need to work in harmony with nature. Nature needs, we'll, we'll do a lot of things on its own. And if we stay out of the way, it'll do a lot of those things. And we, but we can jumpstart it sometimes. So we can, we can help. And then as we fragment our land, it becomes even harder because everybody's managing their lands in different ways. Um, and um, that can create problems too. Um, so we're, we're trying to help people understand what the land needs and how to balance their needs against the needs of, of, the, of the land. You know, the, the government agencies will have the bandwidth to visit a lot of those larger landowners, those ranchers you, or, or, or people, people who have conservation easements. They get a lot of help. It's the people in the smaller acreages that aren't, are getting the help. Um, we visited properties with less than five acres. Um, we're starting to try to combine some of those. So if we have a neighborhood, we visit several people, we'll visit several people, or we're talking about, and we haven't done it yet because we don't want to get too big too fast, of talking to people, homeowners associations, because a lot of homeowners associations have restrictions that are really anti um, land stewardship. What would be an example of that? You have to have a nice green lawn in front of your house, and that's all you can have, rather than a pollinator garden. You know, uh, uh, that beautiful green lawn looks like a desert if you're a butterfly or a, a bird. And uh, why don't I have any butterflies or birds here? Because I have the, the fertilizer and the guys cutting it all the way down. Ah, yes, lawns. What is the problem with lawns? Lawns are a monoculture. Lawns lack a diversity of plants, which is what encourages a diversity of soil and other creatures. 
To keep a lawn green requires huge amounts of water, which is scarce and getting scarcer. To keep it a pristine monoculture requires herbicides and pesticides, which kill beneficial insects, poison the soil and waterways, and find their way into the bloodstream of humans and pets. Not only that, but the machines we use to mow lawns spew gasoline fumes into the air and assault our ears with a loud, unpleasant noise. An alternative is to plant the same space with a mixture of native grasses, wildflowers, native shrubs, and trees that invite and encourage a healthy ecosystem for humans and wildlife. There's an author, a man called Doug Talamay, and he's written a book called Nature's Best Hope. He's actually done videos. I think he's been on public television. And his whole idea is that, is that fact that we've got all this acreage in private ownership and a lot of it's small backyards. And he just wants, and, and then, the, you know, there's more acreage there, of course, than we have in national parks. And so his idea is that we all need to look at our places and, and, and treat them like their own little preserve and then when you add that all together, maybe we're on the right direction. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and today we're hearing from two master naturalists, Christine Middleton and Dick McBride, about a habitat-enhancing land management program that works with landowners. Can you kind of walk us through the process when you go to visit a landowner? One, the first thing we do when we get there, we have some material for them. Um, we got if they're riparian, we actually have some literature for creek or water uh, bordered properties. Uh, we have a number of uh, pamphlets we give them, and we also give them a packet of maps that we've already made for them. And it might run anywhere from ten to fifteen maps or literature in that. And so you hand them that, and that takes about the first five minutes, sometimes longer, because you may even start talking about it. But there's contours on there, the historic uh, uh, vision, uh, pictures of uh, uh, that you get off the internet for what it looked like 15, 60, 70 years ago. And a lot of these areas look like desert. It's a result of, of the 1950s, in particular, um, the Juniper Wars, and they just took chains between two bulldozers and removed everything but, but um, oak trees. And it, it's devastating. And a lot of it was ash juniper uh, or cedar, <laughs> ash juniper that were removed whole hog, whole hog. And it, it just now a lot of that's come back. But uh, that was what's going on there. So, you know, to, for people to realize, boy, what I'm looking at on my property is entirely different than it looked like 60, 70 years ago, which was entirely different than it looked before, 100 years before that. Uh, but we start with that, and they'll have areas that usually there's one or two areas. You know, it may be erosion, or maybe they've got some plants or something in there. Again, if it's a creek, they're always going to talk about that. Um, so th that's where we go next. And on the way, you start looking at plants. So um, we, we, we try to do as, as thorough a survey of their trees and plants as we can. And that's why I, when I do it, I want everybody to look. I want as many eyes out and write down what you see as far as the plants and the trees, invasives, uh, 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 endemic tree, uh, plants. Um, and so we have a list when we get done of, of what's on their property. And when we finish, we also send a, a report. 
And all these files with the maps are part of that. Um, and then we go over the various issues and we go through, uh, and, and we put together kind of a base form that uh, we go through and kind of describe the property and then divide it into different plants and trees. And uh, wildlife's kind of hard. We have to rely on mostly what they know or seen about the property. Occasionally we had one that had a complete bird survey done <laughs> when they moved in. So we had that done, but that's hard to do. We, we learned from the experts, you, you don't do the talking at first. What you do is let the landowner do the talking. Let them talk about what their goals for the land, what problems they see they're facing. Um, you know, you get a feel for who they are and, and, and how, uh, you know, how you might help them. Then we, when we walk around the, la the land with the property owner, and as we go, we identify plants. And when, as we go, we, we're using iNaturalist. So we show the landowner how to use iNaturalist to document what's growing on their land. Because it's, it's a good idea to know what's there before you, you figure out what to do. Um, we talk about erosion. We talk about increasing more diversity. We talk about the health of oaks. We talk about cedar, whether you, know, whether you should clear, and if so, how much. Um, and there's, there's a lot of other things we also talk about. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here today with Dick McBride and Christine Middleton, Master Naturalists. And we're talking about the HELM program, which helps landowners to manage their land better. So you just described the process when you visit a landowner. One of the terms on your website talks about reading the land. What is that? Reading the land... Um... It involves knowing how to interpret what is happening based on what you're seeing. Um, for it, you know, Dick mentioned that we look at the we look at the plants that are on the land. Well, you you can identify the plants on the land, but do you know why they're there? Why they're in that particular spot? And so that that's really reading the land starts with just identifying what you have and where it is, and then trying to understand why it's there and. Um, and what else should be there is another question. What isn't there? What 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 have has 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 disappeared because of, of previous abuse? Are there certain plants that are misunderstood by landowners? Plants that people seem to hate, or as you were talking about, plants that are just removed wholesale because they have a reputation for having no value. Part of your mission is education. So how do you get people to think differently about those plants? Well, ash juniper, we've, we've talked about a few times. It's definitely one of the most misunderstood plants in the hills country. There's two myths that surround um, ash juniper. First of all, that it's not native, and second, that it's a water wick, when it's actually just the opposite. Um, it, it's been here in the hill country for over about 10,000 years, they think. So it's definitely native. And it, it, it uses water, but so do other trees, and it uses no more water than those other trees. Um, you know, misunderstandings are sometimes based on how, how people wrongly interpret what's going on in a place. Ash juniper is one example. They look at a, a, an eroded field and the ash juniper is coming up and they assume the ash juniper caused the problem when it wasn't the ash juniper that caused the problem. It was the fact that the land was eroded and the ash juniper is trying to um, restore the land. So in that case, you might ask the person to, to look at the soil that's 
that's that's that's barren with nothing growing on it. And then look at the soil that's underneath the ash juniper because the underneath that ash juniper, it's starting to build soil. Another good example is something like ball moss. People see ball moss hanging on um, dead, dead or dying branches of oak trees and they assume that that ball moss is what's killing the tree. But no, ball moss is an epiphyte. That means it gets all its nourishment from the air but it attaches itself to dying branches um, for, for a good reason. The reason being that dying branches get more sun than, than branches with lots of leaves. So people tend to interpret things incorrectly and you just have to explain to them the interpretation. For instance, there's two other plants um, that people love to hate, which is Roosevelt weed and frostweed, both of which produce flowers in the fall and those, fl those flowers, the nectar from those flowers is extremely important for the fall migration of monarchs. So it's explaining to people the value of these things that they love to hate, <laughs> basically, is an answer to your question. So I make a lot of the maps that we're giving to people. And uh, one of the ones that we, uh, one of the maps that we give them is the ecosystem, which basically tells you which kind of, what trees are, what kind of trees are in certain areas of your property. And over and over and over, you see ash juniper slash live oak together. On, and, and they might, one might be a slope thing, and another might be a up up uh, up uh, hills thing. Um, but they 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 go together. And so what people do is they come in. Well, I love the oaks. I don't like the ash juniper, so I'm going to take them out. Uh, but it's that's the that's what's the the normal here. There have been a couple of places that have not cut ash juniper. That's the trees, the oak trees do seem to be more re resistant to uh, oak wilt. And they, of course, most people have taken out ash juniper, and they're suffering a lot of oak wilt in that where it is in that area. So uh, that you know, these are just uh, you know an observation, but it does seem to Click. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here today with Dick McBride and Christine Middleton, Master Naturalists. And we're talking about the HELM program, which guides landowners to create healthy, natural ecosystems on their land. Let's go back to how ash juniper trees and live oaks need each other. I understand that the roots of trees are very much entwined and actually support each other under the ground in ways we don't quite understand. And there's a whole lot, not just with the trees intertwining, but with the microrhizomes that are in the, that are in the soil and things, the fungi and the bacteria in the soil. We have a grass here called um, King Ranch grass, which is, a, which is an introduced and invasive species. And it likes bacterial soils. But as the soil starts turning from being bacterial to being more a fungus soil, the actually we find that that our that our native grasses tend to out, out compete the um, the king ranch grass and control it naturally. Are landowners sometimes reluctant to do the things that you recommend? I recall one of them we did like the Thompsons we did last year. <laughs> um, <laughs> And they had oh, erosion, yeah. and we talked to them about divert. They had a rainwater collection, and it was running out, and there was some erosion. They were on a creek and all that. 
And uh, so one of our members is really big on this. And he went through describing what to do and everything. And the very next guy, day, the guy was had done it, you know, like <laughs> he was ready. He had every, all the materials and everything. So sometimes you see that, right. Sometimes you see reluctance from people because the same property, there were some flowering, um, what is it, yellow flag iris down by their creek. And the wife just loved the flowers. They are pretty flowers, I have to admit, and didn't want to didn't want to didn't want to hear anything about maybe you need to take out a few and let some natives grow in between and you know we didn't even tell her to take out them all but <laughs> what you you try to do then is is balance things and 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 okay that we're going to preserve you know and we'll but let's figure a way to get around this that will achieve all those things uh, all those desires makes us make us happier about the environment make them happier that they're still enjoying the if you've got uh, uh, along, well, along uh, Blanco River, you know, mowing right everything down to the river we know is terrible. And that's part of the reason that flood can damage so many things because there's nothing to stop it. Vegetation, in good, there are many strong uh, vegetation plants along a riparian area that, <laughs> the, that a flood basically can't, almost cannot wash away. And those are the kinds of things that we want people to start doing. Mowing is a, is, a, is a real contentious issue with a lot of property owners, especially when you have somebody who's, who's afraid that there'll be snakes and everything else around. You can try to convince them not to mow so much, but an, another thing you can do is, is, is teach them how to mow. Uh, you know, a lot of people mow real, really low. Well, the, the, um, the native grasses don't like to be mowed real low. And so they'll start dying out if you're mowing low. But if you change your mower setting and go up to, to a, so you're mowing at about four to six inches, you'll be surprised how much uh, the bare spots will fill in and how much um, healthier everything will be. Um, and then it's also when you mow, you know, if, if, if you mow before something's gone to seed, then you won't have any more grass next year if, if it's a if it's an annual grass so there's just different things you can talk about um another we mentioned the invasives when they're pretty people people are resistant to to um taking them out another one that comes to mind is is, is um chinese tallow because it is very pretty i have to admit a very pretty tree but it can it can spread like crazy um and another contentious issue is is the deer People love to see the deer, and lots of times they feed them because, oh, they they, they look skinny, um, but they don't understand the downsides of feeding them, um, and they don't understand what kind of damage when you have an overpopulation of deer, what it does to our, our ecosystems. Some people feed them, but the entire environment here is is run by the deer landscapers. I mean, there you can't. Fifty percent of the plants that that you could grow here, it, you don't see them because the deer deer eat them. Uh, so that's you know I've got a backyard and it's fenced in, so that's why when I'm looking at my backyard, I'm getting these other grasses and other uh, uh, shrubs and things coming back that were in the seed bank. But if the deer were back there, I wouldn't be getting them. And so that's 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 a major issue that we have that the deer there. So it, it they really cuts down on diversity. So we're yeah, and that diversity is actually you know if there's one goal of everything that we're talking about, it's diversity of 
of, of nature uh, makes it stronger and it supports more life. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm talking today with Dick McBride and Christine Middleton. They're both master naturalists. I want to talk in general now. Are there things people can do to benefit their natural environment, no matter where they live, whether they live on multiple acres or a quarter of an acre or perhaps in an apartment? How can people everywhere think about their natural environment and how they can enhance it for both humans and wild creatures? Even in an apartment, I've seen, I've heard, seen and heard people talk about how they have pots of plants out on their balcony and they get pollinators. So it's, it's thinking about what I can do to help the natural world. It may be putting in native plants. Um, it may be taking part of your lawn and turning it into a pollinator garden. Um, it's, it's thinking about the soil and how can I keep my, my soil healthy? Well, one of the ways you can keep your soil healthy is make sure you don't have a lot of bare soil. You know, where you've got bare soil, it's washing away and it's not doing anyone any good. Um, thinking about the interaction with wildlife. Yeah, I want birds on my property, so I put up a bird feeder. Well, what else can you provide them? They, birds not, not, don't need just food. They need water and they need shelter. If you don't have any shrubs around that they can, they can hide in, if you don't have any, any trees, you know, the, there's no place for them to build a nest. You, you, if you cut down all your trees with holes in them, those those birds that go in our our cavity nesters won't have places to go. A lot of your pollinators and other other beneficial insects uh, overwinter in the stalks of stalks of plants. Lots of people when they garden, they immediately want to cut down all those stalks in the fall, and then they lose all those pollinators. So it's understanding what's going on in your environment and how you, what you do impacts it and. Um, how you can how you can help it's that concept of that that nature is messy and nature is messy <laughs> but unfortunately that messiness supports life and unfortunately we don't associate that so that's a that's a mental image that you have to change and accepting messiness as is maybe you don't have to say it's beautiful but in some ways it is I think, you know, I see the commercial every day on television with the yard guy bending down or kneeling down in the yard with this green grass behind him and one, one newly planted oak tree behind him. And I'm just saying, you know, I don't think that's pretty anymore at all. It's, I think it's a desert. Yeah, it, it, it's about changing our aesthetic um, for one thing. Um, and and I, I, I think looking out at, at a field that's wild is is beautiful and it's beautiful and and seeing the seeing the wildlife in it that's wonderful um but we've been taught that um you're not taking care of your property unless you're doing something i had a conversation with um somebody this weekend an artist a local artist i was visiting her studio and she asked me what she could do with her property and i said she, she, I said, you're doing the best thing you can. You're doing nothing, and you're letting nature do all the work. I'm curious as to why this work is important to you. Christine? When I was a kid, I spent a lot of time outside and loved nature. And when I retired, the best thing I did was become a master naturalist and get the opportunity to 
come to appreciate it even more and more. And uh, I guess it's become my passion is to try to help other people appreciate it and know more about it. Um, and because uh, I think the more you know and the more you appreciate it, the more you take care of it. You know, I was a little kid in the city, you know, and yeah, we played outside, but I never got that kind of a connection to nature. Uh, I find a lot of my the master naturalists that I meet actually had the benefit of growing up had on a farm or, you know, grandma was into plants or, you know, something like my parents, you know, and I didn't have that. So I, I came to this very late in life, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, it's totally consumes my life at this point. I work with <laughs> with a trail crew here in San Marcos and we get uh, hiking groups coming down to hike our trails. And, you know, I'm walking along and I'm seeing, I know all these plants, not all of them, but I know a lot of the, the, the vegetation around us. And all they do is go through that, that natural area as fast as they can. You know, they want to get those eight miles in, in in two hours, you know, but I would go along with them and say, well, here, here, these are here's the, the native grasses we have here. Aren't they beautiful? And look at the difference, you know. Um, so, uh, again, it's. I said, maybe that's part of it, is just to help people see. Each of us can do something every day to help support our natural world and to make our environment healthy. After all, we depend on it for our lives. Please tell people you know about this program, and remember, you can listen anytime to our podcast. Check out Mothering Earth on your podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan, Signing off for Mothering Earth on KWVH, your own Wimberley Valley Radio.